morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, I'm to invite you back tonight. Uh, Elijah is going to be speaking at 6 o'clock. Uh, he's actually in Puxico this morning preaching over there now, so um, you'll actually get a, uh, a little more practiced preacher tonight than you're going to get this morning. Adam and Bethany are away. Uh, they'll be back next week, but uh, in the meantime, you're stuck with me. Katie Davis was just 18 years old when she graduated high school in the spring of 2007. A native of, Nash of the Nashville area, Katie was by all accounts a successful young lady with an extremely bright future ahead of her. The senior class president and homecoming queen of her high school, Katie had plans to attend, a, to attend college and pursue a career in the field of nursing. She had always found herself drawn to serving others and her faith in Christ had provided her several opportunities to do, to do that as she grew up. But she graduated from high school, she wanted to do one more thing before she started her adult life. She convinced her parents to allow her to spend a year in Jinja, Uganda, working with orphans. Her parents reluctantly agreed with Katie's promise that after the year was up, she'd return home and begin her college education. When she arrived in Uganda, she quickly fell in love with the country and more importantly, its children. Through a series of events of, that she would describe as God's providence, she, she completed her year of service and it had changed her life. And to her parents' shock, her future. Through Katie's efforts, she had managed to find sponsors to help pay for the children she'd been working with to, to continue to attend school where she taught. Katie wasn't going to, going to college to pursue a nursing career. She felt compelled to stay in Uganda and continue to teach and mentor at-risk children. And even though that decision seemed so drastic, she saw it as a natural outgrowth of her love of Christ. In her New York Times best-selling book, Kisses from Katie, she said, I quit my life, I quit college in cute designer clothes. I quit my little yellow convertible and my boyfriend. I no longer had all the things that the world says are important. Katie's faith and determination led her to adopt 13 orphan girls from Uganda when she was just an unmarried 21-year-old. As her work there grew, Katie eventually founded Amazama Ministries, a nonprofit that seeks to serve the orphans of Uganda in various ways. They run an orphanage, a school, and a medical mission that serves about six, uh, I'm sorry, about 400 students each year. I looked it up, they, they've raised roughly $20 million for the people of Uganda in the last three years. Katie went on to marry her husband, Benji, in uh, 2015, and their families expanded with two more Ugandan girls adopted and a biological son named Noah to bring their total to 18. When asked, all this, when asked how all this came about, Katie said this, Thankfully, God's plans happened to be much better than my own, and the fact that I loved Jesus was beginning to interfere with the plans I once had for my life and certainly with the plans others had for me. But my heart had been apprehended by a great love, and that love compelled me to live differently. Katie's gone on to write two books that have both become bestsellers, and she still works part-time with Amazama Ministries in Uganda. Now, to the world, Katie's decision to give up a promising future, her relationships, and some would argue her youth, to devote her life to serving orphans in the faraway land of Uganda seems rash and unwise. The world sees her decision to adopt 13 girls, some of whom were just a few years younger than Katie at the time, 
as too ambitious and maybe even foolhardy. But when you view those decisions through the lens of what Christ has done for us, it begins to make much more sense. It seems not foolish at all. Much of Christian living is a conflict between the spirit that is in us and the flesh in which it's clothed. Christ was clear in his teaching on this when he said in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus tells us here to be followers of Christ, we must take up our cross or the instrument of our own destruction and follow him each day. To the world, this seems harsh and maybe a little strict or stringent but not when you look at it through the lens of Christ on the cross in our place. This morning, as we open the scriptures to continue our study of the, of the life of Christ, we've come to a tremendous moment in the history of the world. This is the beginning of the ful fulfillment of Christ's mission on earth. We've studied his life for almost a year, from his birth and childhood on to his ministry, and we've now come to his death. In Matthew chapter 1, we're given the account of how uh, Jesus' earth, earthly father, Joseph, was about to put away his betrothed wife because she was found to be with child. Of course, you know the story. An angel appears to Joseph, and if you look there in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, uh, the angel says, he's, he's telling uh, Joseph that she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus literally means salvation or savior in the ancient tongue. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Finally, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it's revealed to us that Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus was given this death sentence all the way back all the way back before he helped create the world he would later have to die for. Jesus truly was born so that he might die and thus save the world. I thank Terry for reading there in, in uh, Mark chapter 15. And as we pick up the narrative there, please remember that Jesus is exhausted from lack of sleep and the, and the brutal scourging he's already endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And now he's going to be forced to carry his cross to the place of his death. Now the actual cross that he was crucified on probably would have weighed something close to 300 pounds. And a healthy, well-rested person would have struggled to carry it very far on flat ground, much, and less, much less up and down the hills in Jerusalem. And historically we know that he probably didn't carry, like you see the, the, the pictures of him dragging a cross. History tells us that the upright portion of the crosses that the Romans used were often left in the ground as a reminder to the subjects of Rome to obey the law. So Jesus was likely carrying just the cross member to which his hands would be later nailed. Still, it would have weighed something close to 100 pounds. And as Terry read there, we see he wasn't able to carry it the whole way himself. As the procession to the cross begins, we know that Jesus would have started at the fortress of Antonio, where the Praetorium was located. And we don't know for sure the actual location of Golgotha, uh, but 
it's, it's thought to be where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is today. Uh, Golgotha is, a, is an Aramaic word for the, for the word skull. And you'll sometimes hear this place referred to as Calvary, which is the Latin word that means the skull. Um, if you were to travel to Jerusalem today, you would find markers on what they call the Via Dolorosa, or the Way of Sorrows, which is the path that Christ is thought to have walked on his way to the cross. A lot of Christian pilgrims go there to walk it. It's about four-tenths of a mile, and it ends there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. As the procession started, it would have been led by a centurion in, by the centurion in charge of the execution. A detail of guards would have been assigned to clear to him to clear the way on, on the narrow streets uh, to the place where the people would be killed and to ensure nobody was able to rescue the condemned. There were two robbers in the procession with Jesus. If you remember, Pilate had tried to release Jesus to the crowd as a way to avoid a potential revolt, but the chief priests had rigged the crowd to call for the re release of Barabbas instead. Barabbas was a violent criminal, and it's entirely possible that these two robbers were men who had participated in the violence with him. The crowds in the street would have consisted of common people who had come out to watch the condemned walk to their death. Some would have jeered at them. Others would have been weeping as they watched a friend or a family member go to their demise. Still others would have simply wanted to watch in morbid curiosity. At some point it became apparent that Jesus wasn't going to be able to make it to Golgotha bearing Bearing the burden of the cross. And a man named Simon was compelled to carry it for him. This was an example of a common Roman law that allowed any soldier to force a Roman subject to carry their equipment for some distance, usually a mile. Jesus actually preached about this in Matthew chapter 5. There in verse 38 he said, you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now Simon, the guy that was compelled to do this, was a Cyrenian man who happened to be in Jerusalem. And there's nothing in the text that indicates why he was there. But it's possible he was a Jewish guy in Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Cyrene, or modern-day Libya, uh, had a large population of Jews who had been forced to migrate there about 700 years prior to this time. <clears throat> Simon was a common Jewish name, and the fact that he just happened to be in Jerusalem the day before the Passover seems to me to strongly suggest that he was, in fact, a Jew. I doubt he volunteered to carry Jesus' cross especially in light of the word the Bible uses to describe him being pressed into service. It says they compelled him to carry the cross. Now that word compel, according to the Merriam-Webster 
the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is a transitive verb which means to drive or urge forcefully or, or irresistibly and to cause to do or occur by overwhelming pressure. The Roman centurion used the threat of force to make Simon carry Jesus' cross. Um, it would have taken Simon, I looked this up, it would have taken Simon and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, roughly a month to travel the 783 miles from, from uh, Cyrene to Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus' body had already been brutally scourged and beaten, and it's not hard to envision his cross already stained by his blood. Having contact with this blood could have prohibited Simon from observing the Passover due to Levit the, the Levitical purity laws if he was in fact there to, to observe the Passover. Whether he was there because he was a Jew or not, it's not hard to imagine that he did not willingly carry the cross for Jesus. He had his sons with him who would have been forced to follow along until he fulfilled the duty. Um, as crowded as Jerusalem would have been on the Passover, I can't see wanting to be separated from your folks at any time. There are some people who think he volunteered to carry the cross out of compassion. That doesn't, fit, that doesn't seem to fit the Bible's description. And once they're there at Calvary, uh, they would have, the Roman soldiers would have stripped Jesus and the thieves and then forced them down to the ground on top of the crosses they carried. They would have stretched their arms uncomfortably far apart and then taken a spike and hammer and driven it through each hand. The nerve endings located near the bottom of the palms, or more accurately, the upper wrist, would have barked with excruciating pain at each blow. Once Jesus was secured to the cross, they would have lifted him up and slammed the cross piece into the upright post and allowed him to hang. They would have then taken his legs and placed his feet together and pushed him up slightly before driving another spike through both feet to secure them to the upright. The whole process of crucifixion was brutally devised to ensure the maximum amount of pain, suffering, and humiliation one human being could, afflict, could inflict on another. How mankind came up with this idea is beyond me. When a person died by crucifixion, several things contributed to his death. Blood loss, exhaustion, dehydration, and exposure to the elements, but ultimately asphyxiation was what killed, him, killed the person. You see, with his hands stretched out and his back up against that post, Jesus could take in a deep breath, but because he was essentially sagged down in place, he couldn't release it. Imagine taking in a breath and then being forced to hold it for, say, two minutes. You so desperately want to release it, but you can't. Your vision begins to swim, and, you're black, and, and you see black spots darkening your eyes as you fight the urge to exhale. You and I could simply release the breath and draw on another, but for Jesus to do that, he had to push himself up on the very spike they had so cruelly driven through his feet. Again, the nerve endings in his feet would bark with flashes of excruciating pain as he was finally able to release that breath and draw another one. He would have immediately sagged back down to take the pressure off his feet, but it was only a temporary reprieve because it merely shifted the pain from his feet to his hands and his shoulders. Birds and insects would sometimes land on crucified individuals, and they were powerless to fend them off. This was Jesus' reality for the next several hours. 
It sometimes took criminals days to die of crucifixion. Though he had a few people there who loved him, like his mother and, and some of the other women and John, most of the crowd had come to gloat in his misery. Look there in verse 29 where Terry was reading in Mark 15. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocked him. It says, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. You know, <clears throat> they had plotted this day for a long time. Of course, they were going to be there to see it finished. It's, it's hard for me to think about how they treated a man who was only there to save their souls. It's not like Jesus was powerless in this situation. He told his disciples earlier at his arrest that he could ask. <clears throat> and his father would send 12 legions of angels to his defense. If you remember, if you remember the story of Solomon and Gomorrah, I think it was one angel. Destroyed two whole cities in a matter of hours. Imagine what 12 legions of angels could have done. Wasn't the nails holding Jesus to that cross. You see, we could use the same word. We could use the same word that the Bible uses with Simon to describe the mindset of Jesus. <clears throat> as he endured the suffering of the cross, he was compelled to endure it. The difference between the two is what it was that compelled them. Jesus wasn't compelled by those Roman centurions or the, or the chief priests or Pharisees or the crowds of reviling men or the nails in his hands and his feet. No, <clears throat> instead it was Christ's amazing love for all mankind that held him there in that agony. His love for us was so great that he deemed the cross a painful but necessary step. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm reminded of the lyrics written by the late Isaac Watts that say, <clears throat> When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And for contempt on all my pride, 
love so great should have ramifications for us. When I think about <clears throat> when I think about my old self and uh, the mess that I truly was, I'm sort of dumbfounded that Jesus would suffer like He did, so that so that I might be saved from my sin. I can't quite wrap my mind around it. Paul felt like that too. Remember how he referred to himself back there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15? Paul said he was the chief of all sinners. He'd martyred Christians and persecuted them so many times. And yet it was Christ's love for Paul that compelled him to endure the cross, just like his love for me and you did as well. Listen to what he wrote, and Paul wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. He said, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That says the love of Christ does what? It compels us not to live for ourselves anymore, but for Jesus Paul expands on this idea in Romans chapter 6. And for the sake of time, I won't read the whole chapter, but here are a few highlights. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, where he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then in verse 16, do you not know that whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. As a Christian, the love of Christ, which has freed me from sin, should compel me to become a slave of God and his righteousness. It ought, to, it ought to make me want to do all the things that he challenges us in Matthew chapter 5 to do. Because of Christ's love for me, I am compelled to become a peacemaker, to love my enemies, to pray for those who spitefully use me. Love those who hate me and bless those who curse me. It compels me to view anger with my brothers without cause as being just like murder. It makes me love my neighbor just like or to the same level that I love myself. Now these are all things that I'm not naturally inclined to do. And yet, in the light of the love Christ has shown me, I'm driven to do them all the same. In the Galatian letter, Paul sums this thinking up in one verse in chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
want to ask you this morning, how often do you think about Christ's love for you? Often? Sometimes? Never? When you do, does it make you want to live a life like his? Are you living a life more like Jesus each day? If you're anything like me, those are hard questions to think about. You sometimes find that your flesh wars with your spirit. In chapter 7 of Romans, Paul talked a lot about doing the things that he didn't want to do and not doing the things he wanted to do. That was his flesh warring with his spirit. And we all struggle with this, even giants of the faith like Paul. I want to offer you some observations to close. Number one, Christ's love for us is shown in all its glory and wonder in his suffering on the cross for our sake. Number two, that love is so powerful that if you claim to be a Christian, it should be making a huge difference in your life. Number three, if you understand this love and believe it's real, but choose not to surrender your life to Christ by confessing him as your Savior, repenting of your sins, and having them washed away in the watery grave of baptism, then you're squandering that love and rejecting the grace and mercy that Jesus suffered and died to buy for you. Number four, none of us have an unlimited amount of time on this earth. And to be honest with you, this sermon has kind of weighed on me for the last week and a half or so because uh, uh, I attended, I don't know, a week, week and a half ago, I attended a funeral visitation for a young man that was only 21 years old. And by all accounts, he was an outstanding kid with a promising future ahead of him. But his time on this earth was cut tragically short. And going to, going to his service and offering my condolences to his families, uh, it brought memories flooding back to me of a similar day in August of 1998. You see, I walked into church that morning with my wife, and I was headed to Bible class when I ran into uh, Brother Rogers Robinson. He was the one who broke the news to me that my best friend from high school, my best friend from high school died in an accident the night before. Sorry. He was 24. I remember The shock I felt when I heard that terrible news. And I slumped to the ground, tears flooded my eyes. I remember it was Roger's strong hands that, that patted my back as I wept. I'm telling you all about this because as uncomfortable as it is to think about, 
Death is coming for every single person in this room. Unless the Lord returns, we're all going to have to face the hard truth of our own mortality one day. We have no guarantees of another tomorrow. And I know that most of you all can relate to losing a loved one unexpectedly. But after the shock wears off and the natural grief subsides, it's an all-too-human thing for us to simply stop thinking about it. I just felt like today would be good to bring it right to the front of our minds because we're about to give the Lord's invitation. I have no doubt that there are people here this morning that are not prepared to stand before God Almighty in eternity. You have the chance right now to be ready no matter if, he, if, if Jesus returns or he calls you home. Maybe you're like King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 when he said to Paul in verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I want you to know I want you to know that almost is not saved. Maybe you felt the urge to go forward at the invitation in the past, but something has continued to hold you back. It might be any number of things, but hear me when I tell you that whatever it is, its seed was planted and nourished by Satan. You see, he'll do anything, use any thought, any object or person to keep you firmly rooted there in your seat and outside of the body of Christ where all spiritual blessings, including salvation, is found. We plead with you this morning to step out in faith and walk down that aisle and have your sins washed away in baptism. Maybe you're here this morning and you claim the name of Christ, but if you're being honest with yourself, you will find that you've not been living a Christian life. You don't feel compelled by Christ's love to become a true slave of, of righteousness. The church is ready to help you in any way that we can. Don't wait another minute. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If you've got any need at all, would you please come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song?